I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to the Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the three brothers behind Three Brothers Film chat about a chosen movie or two, as well as broader topics in film culture. I'm Anton Berkstrom, here with my brothers, Anders, and Aaron. And my last name is the same as my brother's. We introduced the podcast last time, but we didn't really introduce ourselves. So if you haven't been reading our site these past 10 years or so, or are new to the podcast or our writing, we thought we'd briefly let you know a bit more about ourselves. So Anders, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, I'm Anders Bergstrom, the oldest Bergstrom brother, and I'm in Waterloo, Ontario. I teach communication studies at the University of Waterloo. Yeah, so I'm Aaron, and I'm in Toronto. I'm the youngest and the tallest, and I work a day job in travel, and I work in marketing writing, and I make short films on the side and do a lot of the film writing here on the site. And I'm Anton. I'm the middle brother. I'm also the middle in height. Uh, I'm also living in Waterloo, next door to Anders. I also, uh, I teach at the University of Waterloo. In these past few years, I've also been taking care of our boys. And by training, I'm a John Dunn scholar. All right. Um, so that's a little bit more about us. But all three of us, we're in southwestern Ontario these days. But no matter where you listeners are in the world, I imagine that many of you are in a similar situation. Stuck in another lockdown amidst the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. So for January 2021, we thought it was fitting to discuss two movies that are emblematic in different ways of the pandemic's impact on the world of cinema. We're chatting about Lockdown, Doug Liman's romantic dramedy heist film on HBO Max in the US and Crave in Canada, which marks not only one of the first works of COVID cinema, but also acts as something of a time capsule of those first strange months of the pandemic, especially in London in spring 2020. We're also going to discuss Wonder Woman 1984. Even though Patty Jenkins' sequel to her 2017 superheroine smash hit is set over three and a half decades ago, it marks one of the first major blockbusters to be released primarily on streaming platforms, in this case this past Christmas Day. Afterwards, we want to open up the conversation a bit to explore the state of film in these strange and transformative times. Now, before we dive into a discussion about lockdown, I want to kindly invite you all to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you like our content, please leave a five-star review. Reviews really do help other listeners find our podcast. Also, like us on Facebook, and please share our conversations and reviews with your friends. Of course, if you are enjoying what we've put together. And let us know what you like or don't in the comments. And now, on with the show. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Paxton, we heard London's in total lockdown. We are all locked in this psychological prison of burning aloneness. How's Linda? She's somewhere in the house. Is there some type of issue? We are fine. So gentlemen, I wanted to start with lockdown because although it was released a couple weeks after Wonder Woman 1984, uh, just this past weekend, I believe, Anders rightly observed to me after we viewed the film that it captures a different feel of the pandemic that being back in spring 2020. So I thought, Anders, do you want to start by elaborating on that observation? Sure. I think part of what I'm getting at is that lockdown at this point already feels like a period piece in that our experience of quarantine, lockdown, whatever you want to call it, the living through this pandemic has already changed significantly from those early months 
Uh, like if you remember in the spring of 2020, businesses didn't necessarily have all their curbside pickup and safety procedures in place. It really did feel much more like everything was really quiet and we were like stuck in our homes in a way that even now, despite the greater severity and, uh, you know, even more strict stay-at-home orders that we've got here in Ontario, um, life, because people have kind of adapted, is already, you know, kind of carrying on in a different way. And so locked down is about like that, that moment when you don't know when this is going to end. It's like, it, and, and I think that builds into the plot a little bit too, this, the uncertainty of like, how long am I have to be stuck with this person who, with whom my relationship is breaking down and what does that mean? So yeah, it's kind of an interesting yeah, time capsule in a way. Partly it almost made me sort of, you know, uh, think about like some of the, obviously it was not a good thing, but like some of the uh, opportunities for quiet and, and solidarity, right? Like people going out and banging the pots and pans. I haven't heard that in a long time. Yeah, I mean, it. it it's before all of this became the, the so-called new normal, right? Um, and mm -hmm. it captures that um, that sort of like in-between limbo that the first, you know, couple months felt like. And I think the movie does, I thought that was some of the strongest parts of the movie were how it sort of ties um, the larger social and global uncertainty with the state of their relationship. Um, and it creates, you know, they're also in a sort of a limbo state. You know, are they still together or not? And what's the outcome going to be? And so that uncertainty on a relational level is tied to the larger picture. I thought that that aspect of the film worked pretty good for me, and that was more what I was into. Um, I have more concerns about some of the other aspects of the movie in terms of the heists. And I, so I think, like, what kind of a film did you think that this was? It was a little bit unclear to me. I thought it was a little bit all over the place. I ultimately think it's a movie about filmmakers who are feeling a little bit shut in and hyperactive and feel like they have to make something because they can't go nine months without it. And, you know, to be clear, I'm, I'm writing some things, playing with lockdown ideas and some scripts and some specs, and I feel like it's an inevitable impulse for any kind of creative person to try to make something out of the chaos. But I think that uncertainty in how to channel that energy is actually present in the filmmaking itself largely because the movie doesn't really make um up its mind what kind of genre it wants to be at first it presents itself the like the basic plot of here's this married couple stuck in home together they just broken up and decided to end the relationship but lockdown happens and you know they're stuck with each other it's not necessarily the situation that the rest of us are dealing with with smaller houses or, you know, single bedroom apartments like where I'm at. It's a fairly nice flat in London. It seems to have ample space and a big backyard. And it's a very nice that. house. But still, I it's... thought watching. <laughs> you know, and the hedgehog. Yeah, the hedgehog Sonic, um, which seems to be a weird in joke about the fact that Sonic the Hedgehog was like the last big movie to come out prior to COVID. But so that's what I mean is that it's this movie that sets up this kind of basic um, comedic situation, but it's not particularly funny off the top. It's a lot of anxiety over Zoom calls. It's Frankly, it's just a lot of COVID cliches jammed in to the first 30 minutes or so. You get the 
glitches on the chats you get the toilet paper jokes you get the day drinking you get the wine you get the constant zoom calls you get talked about making bread you get wearing pajama bottoms and office tops you get backyard wildlife viewing uh you even get yeah the banging pots and pans like you said anders so it's just this kind of i could see them having some kind of virtual whiteboard where like we got to get everything in there so people know and they mm-hmm. put themselves back in that headspace on, on that note i i would also observe that it's a very much um right like a certain demographic and even a certain like class their experience Absolutely. of covid and the lockdown um you know as we just mentioned with the house these are two people trapped and they're feeling such anxiety but they also actually have an immense amount of space uh versus most people they don't have small children you know i have small children Anders, like that's mm-hmm. it's a whole other different thing with lockdown and then also you know on a she's she's a, a ceo of a pr or you know some sort of consulting that sort of thing um i know he's you know working the bus or sorry the, the truck driver but on the other hand clearly like it's her money that has the place it'd be a more interesting film in some ways if it was just about someone who does deliveries and their experience of of covid more heroine perhaps um, well, the other thing is for a formal level, the, the, uh, expressing the cliches of COVID and lockdown, I frankly don't ever need to see another zoom call on a movie. It's, it just doesn't work for me at all that. And I'm glad that Lyman basically abandons that conceit after about 20, 30 minutes. Yeah, it's interesting. He starts pulling back the camera and shooting those conversations from a different angle, purely because I think he realizes it's not interesting visually. Once you get that um, familiarity and that that idea of like, you know, all in it together, that clearly these famous movie actors still have something in common with the people watching the film. So there's almost kind of like a shared humanity that's assumed in pre- uh, approaching the situation. I kind of want to latch onto something that you said, Anton, which is, the idea of rich people having a kind of different experience of a crisis. And in some respects, the movie reminds me of one of those 1930s comedies starring like Cary Grant, a comedy of remarriage, something like His Girl Friday or the recently, um, the movie Holiday that I watched recently, George Cukor's film with him and Catherine Hepburn, where all these movies are kind of playing off anxieties of the Great Depression, mm-hmm. but they're always dealing with really rich people. And it was presented as almost like a fantasy escapism of poor people are going to go spend what little money they have to go to the pictures and and fantasize about the little problems of the rich as a means of escape of the big problems of their lives. But because like there's just a certain charm and there's a certain lightheartedness to the existential problems in those old 1930s movies, whereas in this movie, you get lines from them. Like, I think it's one of the first lines in the movie where Chiwetel Ejiofor is like, for two weeks we were locked together here on, like, a Zoom call. And I was like, two weeks? Two weeks? You're already complaining? Like, you, like, it's meant to, you know, familiarize yourself with the character, but it made me be like, stop whining. <laughs> yeah, now that we're almost rounding up to the full year. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think you're right. To, that's a really good observation about some of the, the class stuff there. Um, and then, you know, today people will watch this on HBO Max or Crave in Canada, HBO. So we can, we can talk maybe about that a little bit later. 
when we talk more about streaming uh, as a, a sort of form of delivery. But the the other thing I would note is there is an in, at least a, a trouble the class thing to some degree in uh, you know Chiwetel's Paxton character that's his name has this you know checkered past. Right, and that introduces some of the, mm -hmm. the the drama within the film as well, and so he's shut out in some ways of some of the opportunities that she is. Well, and even in the so the movie, yeah, transitions from this we're stuck in a house together relationship drama comedy kind of blend into something approximating the heist picture as she's you know it, I'm not really spoiling the movie because it's the whole setup is the whole thing is that she's going to be delivering or transitioning a, uh, a Julie, piece of jewelry out of Harrods department store, the famous one in London. He's going to move it. He happens to be the driver. He's going to pick it up. It is this opportunity that they can ultimately lift it and replace it with a fake. The thing is with the class stuff and the idea of like, we're going to get back at this kind of amorphous elite is the fact that it's Anne Hathaway's Linda who comes up with the idea. It's not It's not Paxton. It's not the working mm -hmm. class guy who takes an opportunity to run with it. He's actually kind of really anxious about it. It seems to be the woman, Linda, who we see firing employees over Zoom. We see drinking too much. We see kind of breaking down with the pressure. And as a you know, scream into the void in the face of all this and her meaninglessness, she decides to rip off some unspoken you know, Saudi warlord or something. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that because he has more to lose as a person who has a criminal record as a black man in Britain uh, potentially than her that's why he would be anxious yeah well I, I agree but there's also this sense that she's also very clearly trying to like assuage her guilt I feel like we've been dancing around it a bit but we should probably just address it because we've kind of dived right into the themes and the timeliness of this movie which is impossible not to be timely but did you guys like this movie? Is it good? I, I didn't hate it, to be honest. Um, I think, but I would chalk that a great deal up to the fact that uh, I like both uh, Chiwetel and Anne Hathaway as performers, actually. And I think Lyman is generally a pretty reliable director, journeyman director. But the things that sink this movie for me is that or, or or make me hesitant to recommend it or, or is that it's just it's so padded out and long and unfocused i think there's a really good like 80 90 minute movie in here but it didn't need to be two hours um because so much stuff is belabored right like anton you, you made a really good point that she's trying to atone for for some sort of feeling of guilt toward him toward society for her you know, firing her workers and, and things like that. And that's already established with the the, the motorcycle, the whole, her whole bid to uh, purchase his motorcycle and re-gift it to him, right? Um, so it's like, it's spinning its wheels. It's like redundant in that sense. And, and that's the kind of stuff that kind of bugged me about it. Um, so I didn't hate it. I mean, it's sort of a middle-of-the-road movie to me. Like, Is that a soft recommend for you then? No, nah, it's it's a it's truly a you know two and a half star like middle of the road for me. Okay, so I I would say that um, overall I wouldn't recommend it. I do feel like there was a good movie somewhere in there, 
and whether it was the focusing on, you know, trying to stuff in some of the, the COVID cliches we've mentioned, um, unfocused about what the real sort of emotional arc is here for which character, or it could be both, but like, you know, are, is it trying to deal with a societal level or is it trying to deal with the interpersonal? It doesn't really have a satisfying resolution of both the way that a lot of those classic Hollywood comedies do. Um, but, or even you know, beyond we'll get into this Hollywood, later, but after you... watching Wonder Woman 1984, uh, the <laughs> night after, I was like, oh, maybe it was a little bit better than I thought. <laughs> it's more modest, but I also appreciated uh, little things like, Aaron, you mentioned it as a comedy of remarriage. And to me, there's even something showy or stagey Shakespearean almost about certain things like the mon the excessive monologues, the language. It's It's a showcase. It's an opportunity for the actors to, you know, do that thing but that doesn't necessarily make it always enjoyable for the viewer after a few times it's like okay i kind of get what you're doing time to move on that's kind of ultimately why i didn't really like it i appreciated the novelty of it and i appreciated the impulses and i liked parts of the performances and i thought parts of it were funny chiwetel edgy four is actually a bit funnier than i expected him to be he's pretty good with some of the one-liners like when he sees a guy with a bunch of toilet papers coming out of the store and he's like how many asses do you have like it's, it's just pretty good line. it's a it's a simple joke and it's easy but he says it well and you, you're just like it gets you on his side in a way the thing that i don't like about the movie ultimately comes down to stephen knight's script feels like a two first stage play feels like it could be on an empty stage where you have two people and you have voiceovers for pe of the other individuals that are interacting in them uh, with the the two main characters that would be like, you know, not present on there. That would be the Zoom calls that we get in this. Mm -hmm. And everything is so overwritten. Like, there's a point where Anne Hathaway's character is completely waxing philosophical about her own guilt. And she underlines every single anxiety and emotion. Like, she verbalizes everything. And it's one of those cases of the movie has such a loose loose structure it has a loose approach to genre it's almost filmed in like a mumblecore sense in, in when the scenes in the home where it's you can tell it's like one or two filmmaker uh, crew members with the actors in there just kind of guerrilla shooting it but then the dialogue and the way the characters interact with each other is so heightened and overacted that it those two things do not mesh in my mind at all so I thought that some of the over, what you're calling overwriting, produced some of the better moments in the film, even if I think that overall, overall, you know, I have mixed feelings about the movie, it ultimately lands as, you know, kind of a five out of 10 for me. But I felt that the verbalizing of some of their emotions, particularly earlier in the movie, and just describing their feelings about how they feel in this, this situation kind of worked for me because it, some of the lines were a little bit like, they actually sort of describe what you, you know, I myself have felt over the past year sometimes when he was talking about his sort of like, you know, how his mind's working way too much now, things like that, that in, in some of those little moments for me were some of the strongest, but I'm, I'm more lackluster on this is like a heist. Like I felt yeah. zero investment in the thrills of the heist. I agree with that. And I think you both identified the double-mindedness of the movie because 
there's also a sense in which it's trying to go for a kind of realism in as far as it's trying to capture a particular moment. But then you have these uh, very dramatic, you know, as you say, overly written, which can be good, can be interesting. The performers do a good job with them, but it, it's double-minded in terms of its execution. It really just seems like what I was feeling back last May where I'm like, I should just go shoot something because I'm not going to get this time back. And it'd be much nicer to have a creative project to show for it. Even if it doesn't entirely work, it's something. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, Anders, do you have anything to add on that? No, it, it's something. Uh, maybe we can... I think you're you're right. I'll echo what you said that after watching the next movie we're going to talk about, Wonder Woman, I'm inclined to go a little bit easier on lockdown, even though it's much less... more modest in uh, ambition, but probably hits a little closer to the mark for me. Yeah. So let's transition to Wonder Woman. This world is not yet ready for all that you will do. Your time will come, Diana. And everything will be different. Citizens of the world. I'm here to change your life. Anything you want. Anything you dream of, you can have it. You look like you saw a ghost. So, I mean, here we have a big blockbuster that was supposed to come out in theaters. Um... They sent out, you know, that sort of message. We'll give everyone a happy Christmas and, you know, make this available for 30 bucks on on streaming. And I watched it and I was like, this movie seems... It doesn't deliver. There's this thing that's been going on kind of softly in the DCEU movies for a while now. And it's that Batman Superman didn't make a billion dollars. And so they court, so the creatives behind the DC movies got so worried that fans were going to jump ship entirely to Marvel that they pivoted and did like a hard 180 in terms of tone. It's how you get Aquaman and like the goofy dude bro superhero hanging out. That's how you get Shazam, which is just big as a superhero movie with like a bunch of childhood jokes. It's how you get Birds of Prey, which is just an absolute, you know, R-rated goofy as hell funhouse mirror movie with ewan mcgregor as a psychopath cutting people's faces off (laughs) and now you get wonder woman 1984 which seems to be in some sense a passion project for patty jenkins but it's her being like you went movies i'm really passionate about i'm passionate about the superman sequels and i'm passionate (laughs) about the joel schumacher batman movies and i'm gonna jam these together into a really baffling sequel to the fairly muted and emotional and really good star-making Wonder Woman from 2017. Like, like, how is this movie a sequel? We can start with the fact that it's titled Wonder Woman 1984. So right away, 1984, it's setting up this dystopian, you know, setting. Um, and I'm thinking, is this going to be paying homage to Watchmen? Is this going to be paying homage to, you know, the gritty Dark Knight uh, returns and instead we get you know a strange 
homage more to the the later Christopher Reeve movies that came out in the 80s. Yeah. That's a good observation. I think it's definitely just a little bit of the the, the Superman sequels as well as the uh, as Aaron pointed out the Schumacher Batman movies. Um, but also I I assumed from the initial trailer that which was a I'm going to admit the first trailer with the uh, remix of Blue Monday by New Order with the like pulsing beat and like unveiling the stuff. I thought, okay, at the very least, maybe it's not going to be some sort of, you know, reference to George Orwell 1984, but maybe they're going to try to have fun. And I thought it was going to riff on, say, Thor Ragnarok or Guardians of the Galaxy, the more brightly colored uh, pop cultural sensibility of the Marvel thing. And then we get a movie that I don't know what they thought they were doing it because it certainly is trying to be the 80s and there's gags about fashion and nuclear weapons and things but Anton I mentioned to you during the movie I'm like there's not a single memorable needle drop in that movie yeah the only, <laughs> like, the only needle drop they had was in that trailer you reference none of them show up in the actual movie what were they thinking I so like they they don't seem to like take full advantage of this are you know seemingly from actually watching the movie arbitrary date that they've picked it's obviously the 1984 orwell reference and they want to have the the bright colored 80s uh, vibe but then they they don't do anything with it really to many degree this movie could have been set in 1995 and it wouldn't have really made a big difference but even how is it 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 frankly kind of stunned me the fact that the movie's I guess a prequel to Batman versus Superman and Justice League because not only are the events of the movie so cataclysmic that Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent would clearly have memories of Maxwell Lord beaming onto their television set and messing with their brains but like the big question is Steve Trevor comes back and when he uses it they you know they Steve Trevor is the best part of the first movie I know that they wanted that crutch because the the relationship between Gal Gadot and Chris Pine plays so well on film. But the scene where they introduced him was so low-key and bizarre that I was actually Confusing. like... I was baffled as to what was going on. And I know they had the stuff with the mirror is like, it's not really him, but she sees him and it's his like soul deposited in some rando's body. It makes no sense. Can we... Let's, let's hold up that scene for a moment because I think it... it it exemplifies a lot of the issues with this film. I'm not even sure what happened in that scene. Like if I was going to describe to someone, so maybe, maybe it's that she sees him and it's someone else's body. Um, Maybe it's actually him. And that is how the entire movie's um, sort of supernatural structure works. I'm never clear how anything actually works. I I'm, waiting for some exposition and redundancy to just explain you know this is this is a this is a blockbuster movie tell me for the second time how is max doing this um how is how is chris pine's character back i like it's unclear to me but the whole movie seems like at this it wants to be subtle in some of these larger scale plot issues where it should be explaining them and then it beats you over the head with some of the stuff that should have been subtle. It's overly complicated at the same time that it fails to explain its basic 
premises. And that's why it is so long for another thing. This is a two and a half hour movie. And I think it barely has 70, 80 minutes of actual content. Take, for instance, to go back to the Chris Pine. So, you know, again, what they wanted to do with the 80s. You have the clothing changing clothes sequence, right? We was trying on all the outfits. Yeah, we was trying on the outfits. Now, if this was actually an 80s movie, we'd have a nice brisk montage with a nice song played over it. And maybe uh, you, you very quickly cut between them with maybe a single line from him or her in those sequences. It'd be snappy, it'd be funny, and you'd move on. Instead, we get like 30 seconds, 40 seconds with each outfit. And it's just like, oh my goodness, you need an editor. But also you kind of like lost an opportunity to do something with your premise. And, and that's so much of the movie. It's like you, they they belabor things, but then they like miss the entire point of what they were aiming for, it seems. So is this, I mean, you've, you, you've talked about this as being sort of a Patty Jenkins passion project. Um, she, I know she wrote the story. Who is also one of the screenwriters? Uh, someone who works for DC, right? Had Jeff Johns. So I'm just surprised that someone involved in actual comic books could like put this together because I mean maybe maybe I'm just out of touch with. Or comic maybe, books not, today. maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Have you but, read a current comic book? You need it, to read like, another it, forty comic books to understand like ten pages. So maybe that's the issue. But both on both on a on a on a auteur level. If this is Patty Jenkins, like having full control to do what she wants to do, I'm like, wow, that's what you wanted to do, you know? Like, cause, you know, the, I think the two and a half hour time reflects that. Clearly, no one felt they could go in and be like, you're gonna have to cut half an hour from the beginning because we don't need all this. But we should have this a brisk two hours at, at max. And then on the other level, on, on terms of just like a a superhero story, it's a bad superhero story. It's incoherent. And it, I'm, it doesn't have a convincing um, superhero arc. Like, what what is Wonder Woman's arc? Max is the only one who gets an arc. Mm-hmm. In that sense, it reminds me of Batman Returns, because the, the main character is also Max. Oh, yeah. Max has more screen time than Wonder Woman. So just a quick comment about this movie's a passion project. So I think there's just two things to keep in mind when approaching this presentation of Wonder Woman and why perhaps some of the suits didn't want to get involved. One thing is that Patty Jenkins was not the initial choice to direct the first movie. It was actually Michelle McLaren, the TV director. She left due to, you know, disagreements. Patty Jenkins came in as the Phil, finally got a chance to do a big-budget movie after making Monster in 2003. Hadn't made a big movie in, like, over 10 years. But she wasn't paid particularly much, and the budget for the movie was lower than the other DC movies because they didn't know whether it would be a hit. It was a huge hit, massive hit, and most people's favorite movie of the DC films. Flash forward to now, she gets a big pay raise. I think she's the highest paid female director ever for this movie. She also got to get, um, you know, story input. Like, she gets to shape the story. She gets the budget to work with, and she gets paid to do it. So it's really her thing. But also, DC has been having a lot of, dealing with a lot of flack for how they treat, have treated certain people in the past, specifically around the Justice League movie with Snyder leaving, them not wanting to push it, obviously the fans uprising, we get the Snyder cut now, but also the person they replaced it with, which was a Joss Whedon, 
was under fire for like harassing people on set and Ray Fisher literally left entire DC films because he just wanted an apology about how Joss Whedon treated him on the set. And so that is the background to maybe why it seems like nobody ever was like, why are you making an entire movie that hinges on a rock with magic Wishing powers stone. that is never set up except for it's like some random thing. Oh, it might be Latin. And then somebody touches it. Oh, it came true. And then the bad guy somehow seems to know everything about it. He never communicates that to us, makes it dissolve, turns into the red Jafar G- genie from Aladdin, <laughs> basically starts making wishes and, and just, going absolute nuts but he's you know there's always a cost when you're granting the wish you have to pay something and and his like, cost is nosebleed yeah nosebleeds yeah. <laughs> and looking kind of creepy like he's taking a lot of cocaine which is maybe just the 80s thing but like honestly um i'm not gonna i thought this movie was horrible this movie was terrible it was but it was so bad that at least some of it if it wasn't so long some of it would have been mildly entertaining like pedro pascal is obviously you know, he was on a star, you know, peak right now with Mandalorian and this coming out, you know, in the same month. But and he, and he looked like he was having a ton of fun for a lot of it. Uh, and the same with Kristen Wiig. She's pretty game to have fun with it. And but yeah, like this movie is baffling. This movie also like if you're saying that Patty Jenkins got a lot of money to make this, I feel like they might have like special effects didn't seem to show it i felt like they're cutting a lot of there's a lot of moments exactly where they also had six more months to release the movie you would think you would go in and edit it up again i don't think they went back in and rendered anything in those six months is what it looked like so my sense is that all of us were quite disappointed with this um especially perhaps in comparison to the first one I guess myself am probably the most lukewarm about the first one of the three of us. Um, But I do like the first movie and I thought it worked overall. And this one, I just don't, I feel like this is just, this is a mess. It's a mess the same way, sadly, that a lot of early superhero movies are a mess. Mm -hmm. Um, Thoughts about comparisons to the first one? The first movie has gravitas in its treatment of war. It has stakes and although I find it a little bit silly that the first movie literally personifies the character personifies the character of war within Ares, the the David mm-hmm. Thewlis character that he, she fights in the end, it makes sense when presented in that context because it is, you know, World War One is the first war where everybody kind of wakes up to just how destructive war can be with modern technology. Yeah, it's cataclysmic on a civilizational. Yes, it's like literally the world will end if people keep doing that. And so it makes sense to personify the concept into a character that she can, like, fight. It's silly, but it works within the film because the film really believes in it. And she's such a kind of naive, like, wants to, you know, she goes there to end this conflict. This movie, the opening scene, which is back on her island and her as a childhood in this weird American Ninja Warrior game where they (laughs) have to, like, put out... I don't know, gender reveal party smoke and like throw javelins and stuff. And it's an incoherent, less... <laughs> it's an incoherent sport. I, I was left wondering what, like, what was the point of this sport? But it was also, it, you know, it's clearly a setup for the lesson, the theme of the movie, which is like, you can't get ahead by line. You can't cheat your way to the front. You have to accept reality as reality and you can't 
There's no shortcuts in life. And that's the entire point of the movie. But it's a superhero movie. The whole point of superhero movies is that they're a fantasy, a fantasy either of power or a fantasy of justice and uh, righting wrongs. Obviously, you know, I'm not going to get bit by a spider one day and wake up with, you know, spider powers. But, you know, it's fun to imagine a kid from Queens, you know, getting these powers and, and dealing with life and how he might. Whereas it's like this is like literally like telling people to uh, stop dreaming, stop wishing for things, you know. I'm like, what about all the people that Max Lord granted their wishes to who was like, my wish is for my cancer to go away or for, you know, me to have enough money to pay my bills and stuff. You got shouldn't have wished for it. That's just cheating. But it's like, the nineteen eighties. So it's thematic people were only wishing for themselves. I thought that was the whole yeah, point of the yeah. movie. Yeah, or well, wishing that... for like the Irish to leave England. What? <laughs> On a deep dive like thematic level, um if the movie's primary concern might my, my my understanding would be that it's primarily concerned about this sense of like truth. We have to truth not only will prevail, but like you have to, you have to go all in for truth and then it ultimately will prevail. But like you can't, yeah, as Aaron said, you can't take, you can't cheat. You can't take the shortcut. You can't try to um, obscure or alter that truth and lie your way to the top. But my concern is that that thematic, for me doesn't hold out when it gets to the end and it a lot of critics and what we can talk about critics later but a lot of critics are lauding this film for being a movie that a superhero movie that embraces forgiveness but i also i thought that this was a superhero movie that has a cheap sense of forgiveness him hugging his son sentimentally somehow erases the enormous damage he's done to the entire world if that's what forgiveness is, that's just cheap, right? Like that, that to me is not truth. Just remember that like the way that most critics or other people like that, they, they take messages in movies is just like a pure structural thing. It's like, oh, she didn't kill him. Therefore it's got like a good lesson. They think they take the like actual plot happening and then they retrospectively try to make some meaning out of it as opposed to it's like, well, yeah, it's because at some point in the movie, they basically say the villain is the monkey's paw wishstone, and it's just a personification of greed and lying. And so the big baddie, yeah, there's no Ares for her to beat up in this movie, but like... But there is a god, <laughs> maybe, in the movie, right, that takes over him? It That, to me, was even unclear, right? To go back to a comparison to the first film, and one of the reasons that I think clarifies for me why this film doesn't work. The best bits of the first film to me, I, I, I agree, Aaron, that the fact that it's, I always was baffled why it was World War One versus World War Two because they tried to make out the Germans to be Nazis, but they're not. I think if it was, you know, leaned more heavily into the, you know, Amazon coming in and telling the men's world that, you know, if you go down this path, you're going to destroy all yourselves, which it does, gesture to, um, that's not the strength of the movie. The strength of the movie is in Chris Pine and, and Gal Gadot. And, and she's much better in the first film where she is the, the naif, the, the new person who's experiencing things for the first time, partly maybe because she's a ex less experienced actor or it, it worked better, right? 
the reversal of those roles also for Chris Pine in this movie doesn't work. Part of it is that they make him baffled by things that he should totally know about, like trains and escalators. Like I literally looked up, like the first escalator was at Coney Island in like the 1890s. There's no subways were in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah, like he would have seen. He they were in London in the first movie. There would have been an underground in London at the time. So it it just it's it's like, and that's one actually my biggest issues with this movie is which repeats to me some of the thematic errors with choosing World War One in the first. It's like these movies are written by people who have seeming very superficial understanding of things like history or geopolitics, but they want to make profound statements about it. I'm not saying that everyone has to be like, you know, absolute historical fidelity and things like that. I mean, these are superhero movies, but if you're going to try to make moral pronouncements and things, uh, I want you to do a little more work here. Like it's just like you've, you've randomly chosen things like choosing Egypt to have oil and things like that, which Anyone with a little bit of knowledge about Mideast politics would be like, well, there's no Emir, there's no oil. Like, this is, it actually leans then into its American centric uh, biases. And, and it's just, yeah, I, I really dislike that. I just want to clarify I'm not saying that the first movie's best elements are the World War I stuff. Okay. I just think that the way it present, approached that thematically made sense within the film. And yeah, yeah, it's better than the, this. the way that it sets up the villain, the way that it, res- you know, the actual narrative progresses and it works to the final confrontation. That all works within still the World War One presentation, even if it's kind of ahistorical. I also think in the first movie, the reason it's World War One and not World War Two is that World War One is the end of an old era and the beginning of a new era in a way that World War Two isn't, because she comes from an old empire. She comes from a time of, like, literally antiquity. Mm-hmm. And in some respects, World War One destroyed any sense of that left in like the modern world, not only technologically, but also in terms of empire. And so I, I just think that it is a natural jumping off point, even if they present it. No, no, I agree. I take your point. Yeah. The thing that I like, <sighs> it's just so strange to think about this movie and try like for me to try to put into words because the actual things that you would assume are the stupid elements of the movie which are like Kristen Wiig turns into a cheetah person that looks like (laughs) she's out of cats Maxwell Lord is just running around like an insane person constantly just grabbing people and being like I gotta touch everyone I have to touch everyone and just the absolute ludicrous things that seem to be written by a child but are actually of a whole in the film because you know Kristen Wiig and Pedro Pascal are never not being weird mm-hmm. therefore yeah. they're consistent and so I actually like that kind of stuff and for the first 20 minutes of this movie I was like are they remaking Batman Forever because if they're remaking Batman Forever with Wonder Woman it's weird sounding and it's probably ill-advised but I can probably like get on this wavelength and enjoy it because I enjoy camp mm-hmm Anders and I were talking about how the film has a strange relationship to camp. Like it, it dabbles in it at times, and then it brings in Wonder Woman, who is never actually campy in in this film, and tries to have her have these like earnest conversations with people, which doesn't gel with the the camp that's going on with Kristen Wiig with Pedro Pascal. I actually think reading some of the reviews, like I think 
by some by some viewers like i think um kristen wiggs actually doing a better job overall than a lot of people are giving her credit here absolutely i agree with anders that she she's having fun in the role um aaron i assume you're talking about you know kristen's wig wig's character being sort of like a um a jim carrey uh riddler and there's there's whole sequences that sort of line no, up with right that the, batman forever. you literally can take the riddler and split them into two and that's max on one side and and Barbara on the other because oh, so it's even broader it's, it's yeah. absurd because so you you have the little things that are structural similar to Batman forever you have the fact that there is some kind of you know when she starts realizing she's smart and sexy and powerful she gets a glow up and she shows up at the gala and everybody's like mm-hmm. oh Barbara I never don't never recognized you and there happens to be an identical scene in Batman forever where Jim yep. Carrey's finally in a tux and looking good and he's running this big corporation it's like Bruce good to see you and it's exact parallel stuff. And then you also have the ending where the end of Batman Forever, if you remember, the weird TV set blender box that he makes. And he's in his giant tower sucking everybody's brain juice into his head. And he's sitting on the throne, which is the exact same as Max Lord here in that weird bunker sucking everybody's mm-hmm. brain juice into him with their dreams. I'm just like, they took the Riddler character, split him, made that the arc of the characters too. Except for, I guess you get uh, with Barbara a bit of Catwoman power, where she turns into Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman, and then into Halle Berry Catwoman, <laughs> and then into the <laughs> literal cat, and then... Um, but I'm just saying, like, those are the kind of things that, they're stupid. I'll admit they're stupid and they're campy, but I enjoyed them. It could be so, fun. But then it's not as fun as it could be. And I was no, seeing it's Anders... Be- it's because Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor are the worst parts of this movie, which baffle me. Interesting. Okay, so I think... I'll have, you know, you, you can elaborate on that a bit. Is it, you know, I came away from this feeling less charmed by Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Same. Um, is that what you're talking about? Ed? What I mean is that the this movie, in terms of its storytelling and in terms of its themes, lives and dies by the decision to bring Chris Pine back. And it never works, makes, figures out an, uh, an actual narrative mechanism that makes sense. It never has a theme that resonates. And therefore, all it is is these two characters that we like, these two performers that we like, in roles that we like, pantomiming the charisma that they had the first time around. But it makes, it doesn't fit in this presentation. And in actuality, it doesn't seem like the filmmakers are interested about them. They bring back Chris Pine as the, well, the fans love them together so we have to have him in there and we don't have a new romantic relationship because in justice league and batman versus superman she doesn't have a partner so we you know we don't want to create a plot hole god forbid (laughs) but she had 70 years like you know like anders and i were talking about like so apparently she's just sat alone in restaurants and drinking wine drinking yeah drinking wine this whole time i'm not saying she has to be out there dating all sorts of men but like there's this weird sense that like You've lived since World War One to 1984, and you're still not even trying to engage with the world on even just like a friendship. Yeah. Like I have one friend who we watch TV with. But that's what I mean is that the movie never, it never answers any of the character or emotional questions with regards to Wonder Woman. And that's why I say that they're the worst part of the movie because they're the part that seems inserted into the story of Max Lord and Barbara. In that sense, it this film feels to me like DC has reverted to 1990s DC. That we're getting some of the problems that I would throw at Batman Forever, 
Batman Returns, like, you know, Max, like I said earlier, Max here is basically the main character, the way that Max Shrek is the main character of Batman Returns. He gets, he gets like an actual emotional arc in a way that Wonder Woman doesn't in this movie. She gets a piece of one that, you know, when she says, I renounce, I renounce. <laughs> um, and then we get a, you know, Kristen Wiig is doing, you know, a Jim Carrey 1990s, um, you know, having fun with the, the villain role. But then all of a sudden we get this like Blade Trinity terrible cgi cheetah faced like i was like you know we have kristen wig like keep her as herself because she can do her comedy thing we don't need the bad cgi swinging around poles and it doesn't look like her this is what like superhero movies were doing terribly before marvel like came to the forefront yeah i, I don't ever like giving credit to marvel but honestly the the way that they handle captain america in the modern era in winter soldier and the fact that he finds a in to the modern era through his friendship with Sam mm-hmm. was strongly written. It is. Yeah. It's strongly written because the thing that the Marvel movies, even if narratively, even if action scenes and just the filmmaking itself, it's completely perfunctory. The thing that they really put all the eggs in the basket of his character mm-hmm. and they get the characters and they present the characters and the characters are performed so that you're always emotionally on their side and you're you're with them even though they're these large life heroes and the first wonder woman did, movie did that i think you know to maybe the horror of some listeners i think batman superman does a great job of putting you in bruce wayne's head and mm-hmm. superman's head and their kind of tortured existence and and why what puts them on that that plane to fight each other and then how they come out of it but this movie again there's really no arc for i'm absolutely and, on the and, batman and, superman yeah anders and i rewatched it earlier this year I'm much more on board with that one again. I'm not on board with the, I don't understand Aquaman is like a great film yeah. at all, but that's it's another the, story. And and in terms of character, you're right. Cause without giving away the ending, the Chris Pine thing is never resolved. It is simply abandoned. And it's that really nice. is, it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is actually worse. In the, uh, but you know, again, don't want to give too much, credit to to marvel but you know even on a shameless like marketing level as i said to anton you're setting this movie in the 80s this should be a soundtrack like guardians of the galaxy that tons of people want to listen to you should be resurrecting some sweet 80s hits it's not even a memorable hans zimmer score no if you're gonna have fun go all out he did the score yeah (laughs) what this movie is just a mess. I think because so, which means there's some things that are interesting about it, but it's messy in a way that is like, yeah, not even like high camp fun like Batman yeah. Returns. My affection, I, a movie for, which I've come to love. My affection for camp and my affection for like brightly colored circus shows. And for idiosyncrasies within these superhero movies, in my Birds of uh, Prey review, I mentioned that, like, you know, part of the upside of letting directors do whatever they want is that you get something really idiosyncratic and strange that doesn't actually care about fitting with the rest of the series. It just wants to be this, like, bright pop of goofiness, which, you know, yeah, Aquaman's not great, but I, I think it's got, like, a weirdly affable energy to it. But this movie... 
then you get the downs, right? You get the Suicide Squad, the movie re-edited to be like a trailer and then ends up having no actual plot that makes any sense. You get this movie, which wants to take all the candy-colored things of movies, superhero movies from the past, but then also happens to take all of their contrivances and cheap effects and bad action and lack of stakes as well. Tied it onto some of the worst filmmaking things that happen nowadays, which is that people don't know how to even just block a simple scene so that it's clear and to the point. Did she forget like, how to shoot action scenes from the last yeah. movie to this one? Compare no the trench battle scenes. scene to this. There's just nothing. Nothing. Yeah, if you take that is if you if you take the sequence which was supposed to be like this memorable desert Indiana Jones style um, like Jeep pursuit and purely how it's shot and you know like i'll say like i enjoyed the action in wonder woman one so i don't know what happened um but it's shot in such a way that the action's incoherent it avoids all the money shots that you'd expect where you get sort of wonder woman like it's not when wonder woman is sort of descending out of a jump it's not even shot the way you would expect that to be delivered to sort of have that sort of you know superhero impact and it's unclear like you're getting shots where you're like we're not showing the full body of heroes it's in close at times and you're like this kind of seems like it was shot like on the cheap and you're like avoiding special effects and i don't want to know what to make of that because i think that this movie was actually you know quite backed um so it's the sort of thing where like this movie um it fails on for me on a lot of levels in you know it it's not as good as a sequel it's weak um it's retreads of the first one are weak as a throwback to earlier kinds of superhero movies whether it's christopher reeve or 1990s joel schumacher it's not even doing those as good and then it's just like a you know having fun superhero movie it's two and a half hours it's not that funny and the action's not that good so what's the point it feel like i wasted my time I feel like this is one of the worst. It's hard to say whether this is worse than um, Suicide Squad, but this is definitely In one of level. DC's worst. I I was kind of soft on Suicide Squad at the time. I didn't give it a pod, positive review, but I was kind of like, I can see what the movie could be. In this movie, I, I have a little bit harder time. And I actually just think the filmmaking on a fundamental level breaks down. And so this movie really does earn that thing of being a mess even if there's no it's not like any of the performances or any of the actual stuff i hate it's just it never comes together it never it never starts it never gets going for me so it's just a complete failure to launch and what i find so baffling and we can use this you know as a launch pad into a a discussion about the state of film the current of film going forward but how is it that this movie, which all three of us find so, you know, um, plainly bad, was getting such good reviews from critics before it came out? Yeah. People softballed this thing so much. Like, I, I going through, there's a few critics. I'm like, they clear, like, just going through my letterbox because I try to avoid, like, people that I even sometimes occasionally enjoy what they write who just really softballed this movie and seemed to take things out of it that I'm like, I didn't feel were there, right? Like, and they made excuses, or they didn't even make excuses. They seemed to, like, think certain things were good. On the other hand, a lot of the people who watched it after it came out, who some of whom are also critics, 
seem to identify some of the same things that, that we did. The, some of them even go in so far to point out how Gal Gadot like, just seems like out of her league in this one in a way that she wasn't in the first and things. And I'm like, but so when people softball these things, uh, I'm trying to decide is they just so badly wanted to like it for some personal reasons or, you know, I don't, I don't want to suggest that people are literally like shills for Warner brothers, but, um, cause I don't think that's what it is. I actually think it's more, they wanted to like it. They want yeah. to like it so bad because of, maybe Patty Jenkins or Gal Gadot or their affection for the first movie. I mean, I've been in those situations where, you know, I really loved the first movie and, you know, you don't want to admit that the second one's not good, right? But you're a professional critic. You you at least need to be able to describe scenes and you need to be able to use language to help me to understand what you saw. And in too many cases, I don't understand what you saw. You saw a different movie than me, literally. I know I was joking with you guys that it was like they got a different screener like the movie they watched before is not this movie and you know yeah like I think we want to you know clarify like I'm not saying that everyone is just putting out false promotional advance reviews but this this disconnect between what I saw and some of the early reviews is maybe one of the strongest disconnects I've seen in a while where the movie itself seemed bad like actually bad but the reviews were trying to sell it as like this is really really good um so i don't know what to make of that and you know i don't know if this exemplifies just the disconnect a lot of people are feeling between the the viewer score and some of the critic scores on things or if this is an issue of um Critics have other concerns. The fact that it's another Wonder Woman, they want to cheer that on in a way that you know we like. There's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of female superheroes, so we want to cheer on her sequel in a way that you know if it's another repeat of another movie, we don't care as much. I don't know, Aaron. What do you think about all this? I don't want to get into talking about what critics are thinking or not because i feel like i'll just piss off everybody <laughs> since i have a very dim state uh view of the state of criticism specifically popular criticism right now um to be frank i didn't read any reviews when you were mentioning the positive reviews i didn't wasn't even aware because i only really look at my letterboxd stuff and all the people on my letterbox for the most part seem to dislike it and I can't really give a definitive answer then why why there seems to be such a disconnect beyond the fact that movies nowadays lack that kind of water cooler effect where the critics and the audience and just like casual viewers are all just experiencing it simultaneously. It seems like big movies nowadays only exist to satisfy one of two groups diehard psychos who are going to go there on the thursday midnight screening or download it the second they can get it or you know they're good the people who are going to give death threats to like a critic's negative review on rotten tomatoes three weeks before its re release and then the critics who create buzz that either gets green lights for the next movie or gets some awards thing going or you know they think that it create at least in the past theatrical a window would would build the buzz that would get it the big opening weekend and so i think it's it's kind of like a twitter bubble thing where 
all these critics are watching the movie three weeks before audiences and having a conversation about it with amongst themselves. And so what they're reacting to is not actually perceptions anymore. They're just reacting to each other and what they want, you know, to be perceived as, as being for or against, because remember all movies are politics now. And then you get the, you know, superhero movie fans who have their own way of reading it, which is purely through like a comic book or genre lens. And the kind of casual audience members just completely like left. They don't exist because an IMDb thing is not like a normal person. You know, normal people don't. <laughs> no, normal there. people go on IMDb and write comments, though. But they also there's no movie theaters, so no. How do we know? I think that's actually part of it. Actually, I want to touch on that. Like, I think that part of it might have been that this is one of the last movies that was meant to be theatrically released, but it was shunted to HBO Max and uh, Crave in Canada. So I, I do think that that plays something into it. Is this changing uh, way of people watching it? And, you know, I think we're only, yeah, I think Aaron, as you said, there's this like Twitter bubble, like most people, a lot of people, critics have already stopped talking about this, but now people like us and some of the people I follow on Letterboxd and places are only getting around to watching it now, right? So I think you guys are touching on some interesting issues. Um, maybe we'll just sort of clarify them. So I think one, I think we're identifying some issues with criticism in it's less, you know, we're not trying to single out people and how people are thinking. It's more, I think some of the issues are more actually structural in the sense that you're gaining access to a film before it comes out and there's an incentive built in to have a take that sets, that sets like the discourse on it. And as critics sort of get um, their access to these films gets distance from the actual viewership right like we're not having a collective friday night in that weekend experience where you can read the review on a friday then um and then you go see that movie you're getting that the critical engagement with film is on a completely different timeline whether it's through the film festivals they're seeing or the screeners they're getting before they're coming out and i think it's getting get even more crazy when we get to some of these other issues that are going on one right like the perhaps end of movie theaters and we can we'll open that up that question you know are movie theaters done are they going to come back after the pandemic but for me the greater concern is that film going becomes an entirely sort of subcultural niche affair and what i mean is that your access to film is disconnected from a mainstream sense of what movies are coming out and so Everyone's just watching whatever movies they want whenever they want. And I'm not there's there's good aspects to that because you're choosing what you see. But the downside is that we can't have this larger conversation. So, you know, already with Wonder Woman we're getting this disconnect because it's like you have to pay, you know, thirty bucks to watch it right away. If you're a professional critic, you're getting the screener. And then a lot of people are gonna catch this four months later when it hits free on streaming. It's, you know, whether they watch it or not, or if they're just watching whatever is good on Netflix these days. I feel like the the film going, we're up in very uncertain times with that. And so I'm interested in what you guys see uh, going forward in terms of movie theaters, in terms of viewership, and how we just approach movies. Like, are we just going to be, are movies just essentially a long form, a long episode in our streaming platforms? They're just content. 
that's like the magic content like all other content and so when you said you know people choose the movies they watch i think the first movie we reviewed locked down kind of disproves that because it's going to be the thing that hits on the front page of crave it's going to be thing that an artificial conversation is created about it because of novelty and because of critical discourse about wanting to set that hot take which then viewers want to react against or or reaffirm and so but you know at the end of the day it's ultimately the algorithm in netflix or facebook recommendation or twitter or your google search is offering up the suggestion to you of what to watch and you're not seeing anything else you're never you know newspapers still exist but not really and you don't get five pages of critical takes on movies and and culture that offers you a kind of diverse slate of opinions instead you get a a never-ending doom scroll feed on twitter or you get your recommended for you stuff on netflix and that means that it's ultimately perhaps yes or no properly tailored to your interests but it's never in engagement with the larger culture therefore the movie itself becomes lessened because it's not created for the purpose of actually inspiring an audience. It's not created for the purpose of actually saying something. It's created to fill the little cracks in a person's content engagement. When our, when our access to content, or you know, in this case film, is entirely user-focused, right? Like the how we approach it is entirely oriented from our our likes and dislikes based on the algorithms used. The, the real problem with that is that you create your own bubble in a way that you can't just show up at the movie theater and those movies are going to be there for you, for everyone else. You know, and there's whole issues with that about what was shown in movie theaters, whether you're going to a multiplex or the art house or whatever. That, you know, there's issues there. But when... What we're facing now is the the problem of it feeling like choice, but you're actually being sort of closed off in a bubble of your continuous likes. And so I, I actually find it sometimes hard to go onto a streaming platform and find anything different unless you're specifically searching it out in the by typing it out. Organically, it doesn't appear anymore in a way that going into a movie theater and just seeing what was playing that week, looking up that the critic reviews in the back pages of a newspaper or exclaim magazine or um, going to the, the video store. I think to sum up a couple of things here, um, I think what we're going to see here is that um, exactly what you guys are saying, the films become content man, uh, you know, plugged into people's sort of algorithmically identified uh, viewing habits. And so what we're actually going to see here to go back to wonder woman and, looking forward to the other HBO Max uh, streaming releases. These films may have uh, more of an issue because they were never designed for that, right? In the way that, say, a a Netflix film or some of the uh, television shows like Queen's Gambit or something was, right? Um, And so they're probably going to suffer in different various ways from the lack of the impact of a big release, right? Um, But I think what I'm worried about is what's going to happen is if theaters don't come back, soon enough or um you know at all which i think we maybe want to talk about that another time i think it's too early to tell um that there the studios and everyone's going to start crafting uh films that are more narrow that aren't you know 
trying new things that are more tailored toward feeding audiences what they know what they want. Things were already narrowing in the sense that right, we were getting the certain target demographics dominating the blockbusters, but yeah, a narrowing where you don't get a, a movie pitched to you know a wide audience anymore. You might just get movies pitched to a variety of small audiences. And so that'll be an interesting thing to watch as we go forward. So again, please subscribe, review, post comments. Thank you for listening. Next month is going to be our 10th anniversary of Three Brothers Film. So we're excited about that podcast. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye, Mr. Baldwin. I bid you farewell. <laughs>